Hello, I'm John White, a specialist in Indo-European mythology, and today I'm going to talk about the mythological figures we often refer to as giants. Now, such figures are seen across many cultures, from the Titans who fought the Olympians, to Jotnar who fought the old Norse gods, to Fotherans who fought the Tutha de Danan, and we see them in Roman, Slavic, Indic and Abrahamic stories too. And when you hear the term giant, you would probably think of huge, powerful figures, often angry, not liking people. But who were these giant figures? Why did they really exist? Where did they come from? Where did they go? And why are they in our mythology? So let's go on an interesting journey to find out more about these figures, the mythology behind them, and their purpose. By the end of the video, we will understand the key concept of Indo-European culture. And so, I hope that that sounds interesting. And if so, then you grab yourself a cup of tea. And welcome to Peckenford. After some of you watched the Finding the Oldest Gods video, I was asked the same question many times. Are Titans or Jutans a remnant of the older gods? Which is a fantastic question because on first consideration, many people think they could be. And that is what makes this a great question, because like most things when it comes to ancient culture, things are much more complicated than that. With the answers buried in the prehistoric landscape within cultural beliefs and within the mythology itself. And so let's look first at why giants might be in mythology. Myths are stories from a time or a place where there is often no recorded history. But they are often inspired by real events or objects or sometimes other myths. And they are often used as a method to explain those events or objects or other myths. And because of this, many people consider religious stories as myth. And this isn't meant as being disrespectful to those who consider these religious stories sacred, as the word myth is often assumed to have negative connotations. But these myths were not designed to deliberately mislead people, to knowingly create falsehoods and fabrications. They are stories our ancestors told to explain things. And we should be proud of them and proud to retell them. They did have a purpose. So what is the purpose for having Titans and the Nar in myth? Well, to understand the purpose, we shall look at a myth that doesn't have giants in it, which may sound counterintuitive, but it lays the groundwork for why they are important and what myths try to achieve. And the myth I will use is an English creation myth written by Bede, and it is in his book Historia Ecclesiastica Gentis Anglodum, or as what it is more commonly known as the Ecclesiastical History of the English, which is around 1300 years old. Now, you may be wondering, why is this considered a creation myth? Well, Bede, who helped establish the church's credentials in England, required a backstory for how his position in history came to be. A history where the church became a focal point for the English, where battles were fought by strong and heroic Christian-orientated warriors as a founding point for the Anglo-Saxons. And the Anglo-Saxons in England. And so, Rather than writing down factual history, as referenceable knowledge was limited back then, and he probably had no knowledge of cultures such as the Bronze Age Neolithic farmers, 
he was left to make up a story, a story that had some elements of truth woven through it. After all, the outcome of the story was known. England was saved and was a Christian nation. But this story was in essence a large amount of fiction, and which then had its parts fictionalised further in other writings, such as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles and Ninius's Historia Britonum. And the immediate result of Bede's work was a mythology allowing people to understand how the Kingdom of England, and specifically the start of the English nation, came to be and heroically converted to Christian beliefs. And it had within it a story of how heroes of the Christian faith won battles against the pagans, driving them out or converting them. But the actual events noted in Anglo-Saxon history of warriors, such as Hengist and Horsa, are, well, best put as not being entirely accurate. In fact, it could be said that these heroes were placed in the myth to provide a glue for the plot to make the journey from the unknown and chaotic history from previous cultures through heroic and historic events to deliver a result that Bede wanted. A conquered Britain free of pagans, full of Anglo-Saxons, and with its own legendary heroes. Heroes that were still talked about when I was at school as being real people. And that is how myths are made. And so you may be asking, am I saying that these figures such as Hengist and Horsa or the Giants have been made up in mythology just to fill a plot hole? Well, that is one of the things that academics have been puzzling over, whether this is the concept behind the idea of the Titans and the Jutnar. Are they created for the purpose of the myth? Or were they considered as being real? were the result of a faith in something. But I will tell you what is real, the like and subscribe button, and so it would really help me out a lot if you would press them. It's free and encourages me to make more videos and drink more tea. And with that, we shall move on. Now, because we are not always sure what the symbology and metaphors really mean in myths, it means that without a deeper analysis, no answer could be considered better than the others. And the easiest way to show this is to look at the Jutnar, the giants of the Viking stories. Now, most people who read the Old Norse tales would be familiar with the Jutnar, which is plural for Jutn. And these figures are found in the Old Norse Eddas, which are manuscripts written originally in the late 13th century, and from where we get most of our information on Viking myths. Well, People who read these would well be mistaken into thinking that the Jutnar are giants, often huge, angry figures, as that is how they are often described in translation. But they are not giants. They have many properties. Yes, they are sometimes ravenous, sometimes monstrous creatures. They are often humanoid, and often described in a way as being large and strong. But many are wise, and many have magical or supernatural powers, but overall, there is enough inference within these descriptions as to understand why many would consider them like giants. And this is true of other mythologies, such as the Titans. And this is where ambiguity starts creeping in, as this isn't an accurate reflection, as they are also described at times as being the same size as man, or in some cases, even the size of a dwarf. So, 
How should we look for these figures that are often considered giants, but which had many contradictory attributes? After all, the old Norse Jutnar were also seen as ancestors of the gods. There are some that were seen as wise and powerful. They were often outwitted and defeated in battles and games of mental skill. And in the old Norse myths, these giants, these Jutnar, were often enemies of the gods, but also worthy of being married to, or at least being a bed partner of the gods. And so from this, you will see that on deeper inspection, being a giant is a very confusing picture. And this leads us to ask a very important question. And that is, is there a reason to consider all these types of giants from Titans to the Jutnar as the same? In effect, are these figures all based on the same criteria? Well, there is a reason to think that as some do share the same attributes as they do share traits across multiple mythology and stories. And here are some examples. In the Proto-Indo-European creation myth, which I've made a detailed analysis of here, if you're unfamiliar with it, and along with its analogues, and in this myth it says that there were two brothers who were twins and a bovine, and that they all came into being at the beginning of time, the beginning of cosmos. These brothers were called Manu and Yemo, meaning man and twin, and Manu sacrificed Yemo. And with Yemo's body, he created this world and the first people on it. And then what was left of Yemo went on to rule the realm of the dead. Now, it is also said that Yemo's body parts were used in different ways. His blood was the sea, his bones were rocks and mountains, his hair was grass, his skull was the sky. And this is all part of what we call the Indo-European cosmogony. And it is here we see the primordial being Yemo being used to make the world. Something we see copied in many other cultures too, including the Vedic, Persian, Abrahamic and Germanic myths. And we further see other similar motifs in those cultures' myths, such as islands that are created by these giants dropping or discarding boulders. Mountains are there because giants have turned into stone or have thrown rocks landing in odd places. And we also hear stories of bridges and city walls or churches being built as part of a wager with a giant. Giants were consistently considered a race of beings powerful enough to create the mountains and rivers of the world, to sculpt the physical world. And this is a consistent similarity. And so, having seen Yemo's position in the Proto-Indo-European creation myth, we can look at the old Norse creation myth and see his equivalent, Ymir, a Jotun with a name that is cognate with Yemo and means twin. And Ymir suffers the same fate as Yemo being killed and his body used to create the world. And so it feels like these are the same type of figures, that giants are the same as Jutun, which could be the same as Titans. But we can look deeper into Germanic myths and folktales, a place where we coincidentally find Hengist and Horsa, who turned up in the Anglo-Saxon myths I mentioned earlier. and. Here we also find some huge and angry figures, the figures we often call giants. And through comparisons, this may allow us to work out what they are. Now, many scholars have tried this in the past and have come up with a number of possible theories of what giants represent, including being a symbol of meteorological phenomenon. They are powers from the untamed wilderness, 
They could also be considered an older dynasty of gods. They could be considered demons of nature. They were seen as swallowers of corpses, a form of an agent of the dead or an agent of death. Or, or indeed, they could be the dead themselves. I think it would be fair to say that considering all these options, it has been quite a popular academic theory. The concept of the giant race originated as a fantasy, an intellectual piece of speculation, and that their enormous size was their most essential part of their figure. And this perception has been applied to many giant figures, such as Titans and Jotnar. But what if giants were a remnant of a previous faith or culture and represent something more significant, especially considering their influence on the mythology of the landscape? Well, now we know that there have been difficulties in understanding who these giants could be. And so let's see if we can find commonality or differences between these different giants by examining if the giants of Germanic folklore and those of the Old Norse Eddas are the same, examining how they are described and their actions. Now, common traits we do see is that they are often seen as being hostile to humans. And this is further evidence that um, we see when we read that giants have been replaced by the devil within Christian written folklore. But there are also differences between the folklore and the Eddas, such as in folklore, giants are always huge and often hostile. But in the Edda, they are various sizes and occasionally show affinity to the gods. So let us look at this size issue and general physical appearance. Now we see in the Edda commonly used adjectives such as aged, all wise, all golden, which is a measure of beauty directed at female Jutnar, as well as hard, stubborn or dangerous. And there may be one-off adjectives such as unhappy, stern, mighty, moody, fierce. But what we can tell about these is that none of these make any significant suggestion over a Jutan's size. We do, however, hear that some of the Jutanal have many heads, from 900 on Himila's mother. We read that Gerd is threatened with marriage to a three-headed giant, and Ulgumir gave birth to a six-headed son. But we also see some in animal form, with Hellesfleg being an eagle, or Fafnir, who turns himself into a dragon. Or we see Loki's children, born as wolves and a serpent, although he is really an oddity in the world of the Old Norse. But there are others too. Their complexion is also referred to in some texts, with some Jutten being said to be dark, with not being dark and black, and hell being half black and half flesh coloured. But some are said to be all golden or fair, such as Gerd and Burley. All of these examples lead us to believe that wisdom, age, animal shape and strange features are all important for the Yutnar, and that females are considered somewhat differently to the males. But there is nothing about size. So what is going on here? Why is there this perception that giants are large? Well, there are some Eddic passages that infer size, as the serpent child of Loki, the Midgard serpent, stretches around the world. The jaws of one of Loki's other children, the wolf we call Fenrir, touches both the heavens and the earth. Skiramir was so huge Thor could sleep under his glove. And we see Himir comment on the smallness of Thor. But for whilst we see examples of these sizes, we see other suggestions that they are not. 
For example, the Assyr didn't recognise that the builder of their wall was a Yudin until he had a mighty rage. The gods used the same sized cauldrons and barrels as the giants. And most interesting of all is that in the Alvismal, a dwarf is said to have the likeness of a Yudin. And with the devil replacing the Yudin in folklore, we know that the devil is not of superhuman height. And so height is not important in translation. In fact, it seems clear to me that giants do not need to be a specific height. It is not an important attribute of their general appearance. Now, yes, of course, there are moments when size is important. Emir had to be huge so his body could be used to create the world. In an interesting parallel, we see that the Egyptian god Ptah, who was identified with the primeval hill, being used to create the earth, but then he was often represented as a pygmy, as per images seen in a temple of Ptah and quoted by Herodotus. And so this leaves us the question of why do we think a giant size is important? And I think it is because we've lost touch with the importance of the other aspects. And as we lost the idea, of magic and myths due to the influence from beliefs such as those who pushed Christianity. And it was size, that external and obvious quality, that was the only thing left that could be also considered important. And so with these giants of folktale and the Edda seemingly showing so much as to be considered the same, their size not being important in earlier myth then we need to look at the origin in these myths to see what other attributes they have that were important. And in the Eddas, we see that the Yudin are close relations to the gods. They marry them. For example, we have high-profile marriages, such as Odin marrying Yur, a Yudin, and she gives birth to Thor. And then Thor marries the Yudin Yarzakna, and they have a son, Magni. And we also have not marrying one of the Aesir Deling, and they have a son. In the Old Norse beginning mythology, we see Dyotun Vesla marrying Bor to give birth to Odin, Vili, and Ve. And we see that many Jotnar have godlike characteristics. We see them with magical properties, teaching spells, God challenging gods to feet of strength. And we also see the Jotun Skadi compared with the shield maiden. We know Jotnar had families, uh, children. They married their own kind as well as the gods. Essentially, Yotnar were just like the gods in many ways, but we also must remember that some were monstrous, some with many heads. This is something we never see mentioned about the gods, and we never see monstrosities of children that come from a marriage between a god and a Yudin. Although I will have to leave again Loki out of this as a notable exception, but we do see some very normal type behaviours. But what we also see, especially in the old Norse myth, is that they are possessors of wisdom, even though the gods now rule the world. And with the exception of Odin, gods have learnt their wisdom from their ancestors, the Jotnar. And so there is a similarity here because the Jotnar are wise and aged and the ancestors of gods. They have not been created. They've not been invented for mythological purposes. They are not invaders or imported. They are part of the inherent mythology 
of the Nordic people. And so we should assume that this is true of Germanic myth, and almost certainly the same of Greek, Celtic, Slavic and Indic myth too. But being a giant isn't all sunshine and cups of tea. They are disliked in many ways, and seen as monstrous in many others. And so, if the gods and giants are similar, are we seeing the picture here of two races of gods, with the newer gods turning hostile against the older gods? Well, this wouldn't be the first time such a thing has happened, as we see this in the monstrous looking titans in Greek creation mythology, being defeated by Zeus, or Mardak of uh, defeating Tiamat and her demons in the Babylonian creation myth. And so, Odin killing Ymir to create the world in the Old Norse creation myth is just another flavour of this, as is the Abrahamic god defeating the many-headed Leviathan. These beginning and creation myths share so many motifs, as I talk about in this video, and one of the ones we haven't talked about yet is how these giants of mythology can produce descendants without the need of help. Ymir produced Yudnar from his legs and arms, but we see the Greek Gaia bring forth Uranus and Okeanus. The Egyptian Utum fertilised himself to give birth to Shu and Tifna, and Sumerian Namu gave herself the earth and heaven. But we also see this defeating of a giant as an essential part of the mythology of these cultures to help establish order. But these defeated giants usually live on in some way, so order is never fully realised, there is always a risk of chaos. And this process is repeated in further myths, where we see a motif that is almost global in its commonality, where serpents are slain. These myths we see from the Old Norse and the Jumlanganda and Indra defeating Vitra to Apollo slaying Python, and the hundred-headed Typhon was banished after being defeated by Tartarus. Perhaps, if I was being precise, then there is a difference we see between the Old Norse Jutnar and the other cultures, and that's the Jutnar are wise and monstrous, where in other cultures these attributes are more often split between two different types of figures. There is also one other difference, and that is that giants were clearly less anthropomorphic than the gods, maybe holding human shape, but they had occasional vestiges of an earlier form which is why some have horns or wings or tails or many heads. And so, whilst they are often human-shaped, they hold some alien features. They are not exactly the same as gods. But there is another piece of evidence we must consider. But before I tell you it, I would like to remind you that I do have a Patreon page. And if you want to understand what I'm researching, it will allow you to get access to papers, influence research and see behind the scenes activities, then please consider signing up. You know, any money raised is put straight back into this channel for research and producing videos. And it is very much appreciated, so thank you to all those who have signed up so far. And so back to the other piece of evidence. And so this additional evidence is that there was proof giants existed. Well, they did but only in the eyes of our ancestors. You see, the giants of folklore often lived in caves, mountain caves, and we see in the Eddas the name Bergbui, meaning rock dweller, being associated with the Yutnar. There are also stories such as 
that around the meat of poetry where the Yudin lives in a mountain and Odin has to bore a hole to get to her. Uh, we see giants turn into stone, often referred to as trolls, and this is true in folklore as well as the Eddas. And we see a giant throwing stones said to result in the creation of standing stones, especially in churchyards or fields. And this behaviour is seen in the Eddas with Hrungnir throwing his whetstone, and we read the Jotun's um, Menya and Fenya sing about hurling stones for men to take. We see stories of buildings being made from stone by giants, you know, walls, bridges, churches, and in the Eddas a Jotun builds a fortress for the gods. But away from stones and landscapes, the world in which this mythology was created has come from the Jotunar. Remember the figure in the creation myth that is used to build the world? That figure in the original Proto-Indo-European myth was Yemo, a primordial human figure, the ancestor of all men, and this is the role Emira took up, or Yama, or Yima, is a consistent figure appearing across many Indo-European myths. And so there is an absolute consistency in the use of these giants to shape the world, through the initial creation of the world to the shaping we see in myth and stories by throwing stones to raise mountains or to form islands. These figures that created the world before we came along, they are the force to which we owe the existence of our physical surroundings. If giants were figures of faith, of a religious belief, in that belief they would have been creators of the world. The bringing and planting of enormous stones mean that these ancestors were creating the place in these mythologies, making those places special. But we're not just talking about the natural geological landscape. Think about what our ancestors saw, and certainly in Europe. There were these huge stone megalithic graves and stone circles standing there on the landscape. Their actual builders long gone. These places kept their sanctity and significance through succeeding ages. We also see individual boulders and stones in fields and forests where rituals took place from weddings to burials. It would make perfect sense that these were built by giants. There was no other explanation for our ancestors. It is therefore probably true that as the many waves of migration flowed up the Danube and into Europe, with each group bringing its own versions of tradition, of warfare, of wanting new land, that these migrants must have also accepted much of what they found. Now, we absolutely know that the Babylonians took over the religion and mythology from the lands they took, and so a similar thought should be applied to the Indo-European settlers of Europe. We have seen this influence with the agricultural gods of the Neolithic farmers. And so, if these giants were once considered part of the native population of the lands being migrated to, then they would be remembered not only for the constructions they left and the magnificence of those constructions, but would also be known for being defeated and so allowing the new population to come into those lands. And so with all of this, I think we can answer the question that is, what are the Titans, the Jotnar, the giants of mythology? As well as answer a question about why they were in mythology. These giants were the gods, were the culture, were the people.
that were present in the lands before the Indo-Europeans wrote mythology about them. They were the people that left visible constructions across the landscape with stoneworks and monuments, with buildings and bridges and walls. And myth expanded these stoneworks into mountains and islands and the building of the world. This legacy of the giants is a perfect way to explain the moving of such stones, the formation of such rock structures and geological shapes. These previous peoples and their culture, and we're really talking about the Neolithic farmers and early European farmers, their legacy was written as being giants, a titan, a Jutten, a Fodderen. They were obviously wise having built such things, but they were in the way of the new culture's expansion. They had to be overcome, and they were probably overcome, probably by force. And so mythology had them written down as always being defeated. I mean, after all, history and mythology in history is created by the winners of these conflicts, those who succeed in the acquisition of lands, those who gain power. These people and their culture were repackaged as giants and monstrous and found their place in mythology in the creation myths. The world was built from the body of the largest and most powerful of them, and it gave a reason for how the world was shaped. So the myth was written where chaos was defeated, and this chaos, which continually came into the lives of the Indo-Europeans, was a constant effect on the lives of our Indo-European ancestors. And this became a consistent motif for Indo-European mythology and many mythologies. And it was, we must defeat chaos to create order. So over time, the myth of creation went from a sacrifice of a twin, Hemo, to defeating a monster in Mir or Typhon or Tiamat and stories of order of chaos of heroes defeating serpents and dragons continued to be a mainstay of myths of our Indo-European ancestors. But let me end by talking about how our ancestors knew that you can find order by overcoming the surrounding chaos. And if you do that, then happiness would come to you, or at least some peace of mind. And it is that belief which is at the root of many of our ancestors' stories to create order from the drama of life, life's chaos. Our ancestors knew that removing the chaos from your life, removing your problems would enable you to find peace and happiness. And yes, removing chaos is hard. It was hard. Life is hard. It can be challenging. The world comes with chaos and it will turn up in your life, irrespective of how you live. But removing it will give you a best chance of peace and happiness. And that's why there are so many stories and myths about defeating chaos amongst all cultures, across all our ancestors. You see, life back then was not governed by the materialistic stories many tell today, stories often spread through social media, where many people are unhappy. Underneath this cover of a momentary photo or video, Life is not about acquiring those materialistic items which bring joy for just a brief moment. Life is about living and removing chaos and creating order. And perhaps there are things we could learn from that. Well, I'll stop there and say I hope you enjoyed this video. 
Please press the like button and leave a comment. It makes so much difference. And please stay safe and stay well. And this was Crackenfall. I would like to thank Jerry S for helping produce this video. And many thanks to my other patrons, Tina Shadberg, Fergus McEwen, Amelia S, Cataphractus, Divinities and Cults, who has a website, by the way, worth visiting, Is it Ark, Jennifer Block, Patty, Richard DeLotto, Wendy Smith, Anna Seedell, Johannes Rady, and Patrick Flay. Thank you. Thank you for your support.